You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians, where our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking with your friends. We examined current events from a libertarian perspective while treating modern politics with all of the irreverence it really deserves. We toss out the screaming heads and put people before political parties and give context to the news to make you think. My name is Chris Spangle, and this is a special series on We Are Libertarians called The Swamp Explained. And my co-host for this series is Rob Cortell. He is a 45-year fly on the wall in Washington, D.C., Rob has worked for Republican presidential campaigns, government agencies like the EPA, and has been confirmed by the Senate to the U.S. Federal Maritime Commission. He also has been a candidate for Congress and Senate. And given his experience and iconoclastic viewpoints, Rob gives us a great insight into the swamp, and that makes up our nation's capital. Uh, And we have a special feed now. We have separated all the episodes of The Swamp into one single feed. So if you look up in any podcatcher, The Swamp Explained, you'll find this show. So you can go back and catch up on all the episodes easily or share with your friends. Uh, And Rob, you too. Uh, So that is a new feature that we've got. So make sure that you you grab that link at wearelibertarians.com and tell your friends. So Rob, how are you doing today? I am doing just peachy keen. So, uh, you know, the summer has been lovely on the uh, island, <clears throat> but uh, today we're overcast. What can I say? Yeah, well, it's beautiful, <laughs> 74 and sunny here, and so we're, yeah. we're enjoying it. So hopefully tomorrow it'll be nice. Yes, <laughs> So for the work day, for the work day. If you ever need the weather report, just call me and I'll tell you what it'll be like tomorrow. So, oh, good. <laughs> so we, we get your weather first. So we have a we have so much that we could talk about. Uh, it's it's you know just the amount of things that Trump has done since Friday. Uh, we could we could really go on and on about. Um, I, l- let's start with or said he's, or said he's done or, or, or said, said he's like done do. or said he'd like to do. I'll, I'll give you the choice. Do you want to start with Greenland? Do you want to start with being uh, labeled the chosen one? Do you want to start with the economy and the recession? Where where would you like to start? Well, I think. Um, do you think I think we could start with Greenland just for a minute because <clears throat> Greenland, which sounds wacky, um, isn't necessarily so wacky, uh, uh, or at least historically, as a country, we've approached it before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, uh, but I I do think it's an interesting example both of his uh, not understanding how uh, the diplomatic and international world works in politics and the 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 enthusiastic willingness of his critics to jump on everything he says yeah willy-nilly you know and i'm i'm not trying to defend him per se here but i i do think you know it's um they i think one of the things that we see with so many different issues is sort of the false outrage and the, the hand hand waving and the, the you know how you, how as kids we used to you know, circle our finger around our temple to indicate somebody was crazy. <laughs> right. <laughs> sort of a little bit of that. Um, and of course, you know, President Truman made an offer to buy Greenland. And um, I think uh, there was another time way back when. And, you know, the president does have the authority to at least create those kinds of negotiations even before a, um, a, uh, a purchase is made and any purchase would have to be ratified. But uh, so I think Greenland is more symbolic than anything else. And we do have a big base up there. Um, so, 
That's kind of my take on it. Yeah, we apparently have, and and we had let freeze over some nuclear waste at one of the bases up north during the Cold War, and so there's with the melting ice caps. Yeah, Greenland plays, I I have marked first the national interest because I think they do a lot of really like neutral, interesting reporting on geopolitical affairs, and the Arctic, the race for the Arctic and the oil within seems to be a constant hot topic that they cover and Greenland, I think, plays an important part of that. But there's also another piece that I heard this week that Denmark is the last holdout on signing this agreement that would allow the be, the flowing of natural gas through Russian pipelines. And so Denmark is actually holding out. And so part of the reason that Trump is doing this and causing all this drama is that he's trying to put pressure on Denmark to not sign that agreement that would allow the flow of natural gas to Europe and which uh, that's where it always gets to with Trump where it's like it's the 32D chess argument that his bad behavior plays into some master plan and you never can tell like is it Trump being strategic with his tantrums or is it just Trump is a big giant baby you you never know and so obviously but you know what happened I'm sure what happened is somebody talk in the White House in a briefing about the, the strategic value of Denmark, and we, I mean, of uh, Greenland, and here we have a base there, and, and then, oh, by the way, and uh, and of course, it's it hasn't exactly fostered a lot of happy talk out of out of Denmark either as a consequence, so if he's planning to use that to stop them from signing onto the pipeline, um, it's probably in a, remarkably ineffective. I'd yeah. be just stunned if that were that was part of the logic, but I, I would not be surprised if it came up in the context of a discussion like that. Yeah, you've met presidents, you've worked for presidents, you yeah. understand probably how this works, and it seemed to me just what you said. Somebody around him mentioned this, or mentioned yeah. this to him directly, and so he just kind of got other presidents, as far as I've read, just kind of get obsessed with like this one weird idea. Yeah. You know, like here in Indianapolis, the mayor gone by, uh, Ballard, got obsessed with the idea of a cricket field here in Indianapolis. And everybody's like, this is crazy. Stop talking <laughs> about this. You know, the, like they just sort of glom on. And that's what this felt like. It was just sort of this thing. And then he was like, well, I'll have fun with it. <laughs> well, and of course, it, I think it, it, it there's no question it appealed to his um, instincts as a real estate developer. And he, he said so, in fact. So uh, but but again, I, th- I think the value of the that is more symbolic than it is uh, whether it's real or not. Uh, you know, it's this, it is this issue of um, uh, how he feels and reacts emotionally to criticism and the steady drumbeat at each other of both sides. You yeah. know, so it's uh, someone, one of my, one of my, my uh, uh, pro Trump friends said, you know, he never gets a break. They're always criticizing him. Well, I, I think that's more or less true. Um, there's, of course, a lot to criticize, and he never lets up, so that's why he never gets a break. But um, Yeah, so. I, I, I agree, and I think that's sort of... Uh, the press at this point can't help themselves. They don't realize they're helping create the monster. Well, that's right. That's right. So, um, well, there, we've, we've now dispatched Denmark and Greenland. <laughs> yes, and so we, <laughs> we transition right into uh, the chosen one, uh, the, the king of the one. Jews, yes. So yeah, I actually yeah. know Wayne Allen Root, and very few people know this, <laughs> but when Wayne Allen Root ran for chair uh, at the, for the National Libertarian Committee, I think in 2010, I'm actually the person that wrote his strategic plan that was passed out. So wow. I, 
and I was going to be Wayne Allen Root's executive director should he win chair, the chair's race. He, he came sort of close, uh, and he had sort of a... He had an important lesson on me in that you can't be a political pundit and a party official at the same time because it causes too much strife. And so Wayne's goal was always to get himself on Fox Business and Fox News and write books and write The Conscience of a Libertarian. And he's a very controversial figure in the Libertarian Party because he, he really what it comes down to, he was a populist right person. I mean, he, Trump is exactly who Wayne Allen Root was always waiting for. I mean, he was, it was the second he came out, I thought of Wayne Allen Root because I was like, oh, Wayne's going to love this guy. They're the same person. They have the same sort of attitude. And, you know, Wayne is uh, formerly Jewish and converted to uh, Christianity. And so when he tweeted out that, you know, Israel loves the king of the Jews and he's the chosen one for the people of Israel, like, uh, as a Christian myself, I look at another Christian, I go, hey, that's sacred language and you're bordering on profane when you're using it about Donald Trump and political figures. It's like, but the the real issue is like Wayne's just going to say outrageous things because that's what Wayne has always done. He loves to get attention for himself. Um, you know, he's he's just he is who he appears to be on TV. But, well, so, yeah, but so, so he's the guy who who uh, who christened him the, the uh, second coming, right? Yeah. So he was saying he's the second yeah. coming. He's the he's the chosen. Well, he's. He used this. He invoked the King of the Jews language. He wasn't saying he is that. He was saying people in Israel love this guy. I don't know what you're talking about. He is to these people. He's like this. He was he was using hyperbole as Wayne typically does, which Wayne does what he does, and he's a you know second third tier pundit because of the way that he presents things. It's when the president picks up on that and tries to promote the idea and and amplifies that idea and isn't like i don't know about you but if somebody called me the king of the jews and the chosen one i would immediately go well all right you're a little out of bounds like i got invited to uh, participate as a judge in a celebrity dance competition for some like local dance studio i'm like Easy with the celebrity word, like uh, you know what I mean. Well, that's right. And does that mean you're a good dancer? No, no I, I was the least qualified person for a hip hop dance off. <laughs> but uh, well, but you know, this of course raises some other issues too. So, um, actually, one it it uh, reminds me of one of our first conversations about um, my friend Bill Strauss in the book Generations and mm. later book called The Fourth Turning: Cycles of History. Right, and the prediction that um, in the uh, 2010s to early 2020s that um, a member of the um, uh, uh, the boomer class would uh, return to save us all from our fo- you know from our follies and uh-huh. and, uh, and the guy who turned that into a movie was Steve Bannon yep <clears throat> and so I always wondered whether Steve Bannon felt he was the the um, the social messiah of sorts or whether he you Trump is the social messiah to save us all from ourselves. But, um, but again, you know, it is, um, Trump loves all that kind of stuff. He likes to be the best. And, and, um, so again, it's another one of those things that if, um, you can't tell how much he's joking or jabbing, if you understand the difference. So he likes to jab everybody. Um, and uh, he likes to be the uh, the thrust of the media, 
uh, just 24-7. I mean, that's, I think, that we have learned about Trump. It's 24-7 Trump, you know, all channels all the time. And the media likes to help him on that. So, um, you know, I doubt seriously he thinks he's the second coming or, or that he, uh, any of those things. But there's no question that he loves the, 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 um, the illusion and uh, reference by your, your buddy. But again, I, you know, if we take the, if we move back away from all this and, and think about the broader context of Washington and, and the swamp and um, everything else, you know, what Trump is, is a disruptor. And what he is disrupting is the, the way people see things, talk about things, do things, um, make plans about things. And, um, you know, some, some of that is at a high level good if you can divorce it from him. Um, so I know this is a long ways from Trump being a messiah, but, um, but, uh, I do believe in the back of his mind probably is that he is, uh, he is the chosen guy who's got the chance to go out there and, you know, punch the ja the Chinese in the nose and, and, uh, stomp on the Iranians and, uh, push back on the Europeans and, um, you know, cut a deal on, on Jerusalem and blah, 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 blah. So I, so thematically it does not surprise me in the least yeah so make any sense yes and so on the messiah complex because here's the thing with trump and this is part of the whole trump movement that that it's too clever by half there the i'm just kidding thing the yeah. provocation thing provocation for the sake of provocation to make the left cry i get all that and i'm not I, i'm sort of down with that but at a certain point the whole I'm just kidding thing eventually starts to morph into uh, him ordering on Twitter companies not to work with certain things, him him floating the idea that we're going to use Amazon right. Alexas to spy on people so they can see if they're like at a certain point, all of this starts to add up into the past the I'm just kidding part to this guy really does have some tendencies that are very frightening and no, this is not he, he I don't believe Donald Trump is a fascist. I think he has those tendencies, but right. what what is the long term implications of the Trump movement and these impulses towards law and order, towards more fascistic ideas that blossom twenty, thirty, fifty years down the road in the American ecosystem? And I think that to me is the more dangerous part of Donald Trump than Donald Trump himself. Well, again, and again, you know, that raises the question of, is it him or is he the, or is he the, uh, the vessel mm. for frustrations, which have been around for 25 years and growing and which we see everywhere else, which is the whole populist movement. And I really think it's more populist than it is fascist per se. I think yeah. fascism has, you know, it's organized thought, whether we, you know, we don't have, we don't like it, but it's organized thought, whereas populism is a kind of, it's, it's almost Brownian. And uh, and it, it feeds on itself until something happens to really um, let the air out of it. Right. And I don't think we've had that yet. And, uh, and although Trump may well be <laughs> what lets the air out of it um, if he is rejected in uh, 2020. You know, and at this stage, I continue to think that the Democrats are doing everything they can to to uh, lose. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, you know, it's maybe it's a little funny segue from here, but, you know, it's watching uh, Joe Walsh this morning on uh, Stephanopoulos show on TV um, and announcing he's going to run for president against Trump. 
And of course, the language was the language that the left has primarily been, been using and that the conservatives used during the campaign, but have since zipped their lips around, uh, uh, starting with unfit. And, uh, uh, you know, Walsh himself has been a cause of a lot of the, 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 the um, damage to the ecosystem, the political ecosystem and, and civility and everything else that, that led to Trump. You know, he's the guy who, who declared that uh, Obama was a Muslim and, uh, uh, you know, ad nauseum, that kind of statement. Although, again, today, he basically rejected all that and apologized for it and said that he, he felt that he was partly responsible for all that in his talk radio and everything else that he was doing. So, you know, the other, the other side of that is um, I do think that if, if Walsh, Walsh could gain some traction among um, uh, some conservatives who consistently say that Trump is not a conservative, except that he himself is not a particularly savory character either. So. Yeah, so Walsh I've followed on Twitter, and I find him, uh, his anti, I, I've just, he caught my eye because A, I watched the talk radio world, and B, it was weird to see this guy who's a former flamethrower start going after Trump and not try to, like, if you're in talk radio, like, Donald Trump is talk radio. Like, Donald Trump says yeah. the things that I heard when I was sitting at a board in 2005 taking phone calls on immigration. Donald Trump was the caller. Like, he is the, the, the talk radio president and it, it it was interesting and, and so i could see a situation where i would i don't know much about joe walsh but let's say a mosh so uh, on the table in terms of right-leaning protest votes justin amash continues to flirt with the idea of running as a libertarian party presidential candidate lincoln chafee floated this week that the the former senator from rhode island yeah, uh, yeah. He floated the idea of running as a libertarian, which I'm not. N no, thanks. Uh, and then uh, Mark Sanford huh? has been flirting with the idea of running as a Republican or a Libertarian Party candidate for months. Uh, that's been behind the scenes. The former. And so you've got somebody in Sanford who, again, kind of fits within that Walsh framework of formerly part of the problem now has seen the light. Um, right. And I right. know that that Mr. Rogers himself, John Kasich, as you mentioned before we went on, is is thinking of running too. Like, do you think that there is a, any kind of path based on your historical knowledge and, and just being around, do you think there's any path for any of these guys to really make any kind of dent in the race for Trump? Uh, against well, I do actually. Um, I do. Um, if you think back to Lyndon Johnson and, uh, and, uh, when he ran, uh, in the spring of 60, fall of 67, I guess, mm -hmm. and into 68, and uh, uh, Gene McCarthy challenged him. And uh, he, you know, McCarthy uh, was pretty much out of the mainstream then of the Democratic Party, but he, I think he sufficiently weakened uh, Johnson. And then uh, Bobby Kennedy came along, and Bobby Kennedy won a couple primaries. California then was assassinated, but all of that really hammered on, um, that hammered Johnson who withdrew from the race. And I remember watching that as, uh, uh, as a 17 or 18 year old when he did it. And it was a shock. I don't, you know, of course I wasn't as knowledgeable about the political process then, uh, as I am today, 50 years later, but, um, uh, 
I do. I think that um, I think that I don't think Walsh could beat him, and I think if Walsh beat him, uh, he could win. I don't think he could win, and he himself said that. Really, he hmm. he said that if he could just make it so that he weakened Trump enough that he lost, and Scarborough really pressed him today. Well, what if it was you know Elizabeth Warren or somebody else? Uh, not Scarborough. I mean uh, uh, Stephanopoulos that if uh, it was Elizabeth Warren on the other side, would you want him to lose to Elizabeth Warren? And he really didn't address it directly, but I know, but he, he was essentially saying, I want him to lose. Hmm. So did, he, did a, he say why? I mean, I mean, what, what, what a way to end your career in your own movement. Because he's unfit, because he's unfit and immoral and, you know, the whole litany of language that he used, you know, in the past about right. other people huh. um, and which he's now rejecting. But I do think that he could conceivably if he got any traction at all, and I'm not saying I'm predicting that he will, but if he got any traction at all, uh, that could provide an opening for um, someone who's a, a more serious mainstream Republican like a Kasich. Uh, I don't think Bill Weld has a snowball's chance in hell. No. Um, I, I don't think any of the others do too, but I do think Kasich could create, could be a rallying cry and as could Romney. You know, I, if, if it looked like there was a real opening, I you never uh, you should never dismiss uh, the the e ego drive to become president by people who've run for it before and lost. Mm -hmm. So uh, yes, so it, I think it, it feels like Mitt took that position to put himself in that particular position. I mean, it really. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, well, I think he he just likes public service too, but I I don't want to diminish his I, you know the, the call for public service, but. But the other aspect of that is that um, I do think that the big tactical question is, will uh, his, I guess it's his niece, right, who is the chairman of the Republican National Committee. Oh, yeah. Uh, what would she do if there was a real candidate who uh, was somewhere out there hammering away for Trump and demanding uh, to be in debates? Mm. And... Um, that would be very interesting because I think at this stage, um, people would no longer be afraid of Trump. They have nothing to lose. Uh, so uh, that could be pretty interesting. I sort of feel like the voting population doesn't want challengers to a sitting president. Like they don't like that. But, you know, the, the, the approval ratings for Trump is 80, 90 percent in the Republican Party. Yeah. But I feel I, I just think that if ever there was a president that deserved to be challenged from within his own party, it has to be Donald Trump. Yeah. Well, and, and Walsh makes the point that he's really not a conservative, not a Republican, kind of not anything ideologically. Um, and, and of course, for some of us, even a lifelong Republican like, like myself, uh, if he were if he were uh, nothing ideologically and simply a pragmatist, that would be a good thing. Right. <laughs> you know, because then. It becomes a question of how do you balance up, you know, competing political interests to get, you know, what's the end game and how do you get there? If, so, if he weren't such a narcissist, like, and he just let... And he uses that term. Walsh uses that term. Yeah, if he weren't just the poster child for it, if he got off Twitter, his Clintonian centrist... I, I really thought that in 2015, 2016, I was like, you know, if Trump can get out of his own way, he could be a particularly effective president in terms yeah. of bringing people together, but he just can't let the need for attention go. It's really kind of, I think if you're, 
if you really wanted, if you're maybe more of, and maybe I'm assigning this to you, you're the type of person who wants government to be effective and run efficiently. Yeah. Uh, I'm more of the the joker from The Dark Knight where it's like, let's have fun. Uh, but, um, <laughs> you know, if you're more of your, like, he could have been such a powerful, pragmatic president had he just not been, I don't want to say yeah. mentally ill, but let's dance around it. I mean, he just is... Yeah. Well, so here's here's another alternative thought for you. If he if he did win, um, again, it's sort of obviously it's I think it's far out speculation. If he did win, and which I again I I think it's more likely that he will get a second term than not, at least at this point in time, um, he might also then be freed from the Republican Party. Yeah, and uh, and then will go his uh, own merry way again. He really doesn't have any particular roots anywhere. And uh, so I suspect a second term would be very different from a first term. And of course, we uh, you have the problem of the Senate and the House, I think, is very much likely to stay in Democratic in the hands of the Democrats. Uh, I, again, I'm not so sure I think the Senate's going to change, but I, I think the gap will narrow probably. Long ways out, though. What can happen in this, you know, in that period? So yeah. So I want to I want to ask you about maybe a swamp related question because my working theory is that Donald Trump just illustrates the way that the system works. He is not special and unique to it. He just because of the media scrutiny brings light to things that we don't like, and we should change the system. I mean, is his is his um, narcissism or his just he his feelings of grandeur? Like, is that a very commonplace thing, that, that sense that he's a man of history? Like, do you, do you pick up on, as you wor- work around these circles, like, are there a lot of people who that have that kind of attitude right. towards their own mm-hmm. position and, and sense in, in the government and history? So, so, so over, um, and, you know, I don't always have direct experience, but over the last 50 years uh, it, as an adult in Washington, um, I think the the main lesson over time is that most people, when they take on a national office and responsibility, kind of grow up to it. They, they step up to it and, and they can't always, they don't always succeed and they're not always capable. But I do think most people, whether they're a cabinet secretary or, uh, you know, or a federal maritime commissioner or anything else, <laughs> you sort of, uh, or president, you, you realize you're in a public position and you, um, you have some obligations there, which, yes, they they fall into the bounds of what you call normalcy somewhere. Maybe that's the swamp. But um, but then there's some who don't. You know, there are others who who think of it as a as a a party or a place to make money or things like that. Um, and and uh, I certainly have known several people who were convicted of. Uh, really what was petty corruption. You know, I knew a, a guy who was uh, head of the St. Lawrence Seaway who essentially went to jail for padding his uh, expense reports in the realm of under $1,000. Uh, you know, there was a congressman, later governor of Connecticut, uh, Roland, who went to jail for accepting really very modest um, uh, you know, bribes of you know, work around his house and other kinds of things. Uh, you know, Ted Stevens was convicted of that similar uh, corruption. 
And so there's a kind of, sometimes there's a kind of sloppiness that creeps in. And sometimes Jack, uh, Jack Abramoff and Tom DeLay. Yeah, Abramoff and those guys. Yeah. And although I, I think in his case, it was probably didn't creep in. I think it was there. <laughs> <laughs> it was a feature, not a bug. Yeah. A feature. Yes. Right. So, and you know, and I know that when I was a uh, commissioner, uh, I, I gave so many speeches and I had a budget, you know, every public official typically has a travel budget that they can use for, you know, that's sort of non-obligated, meaning in a way that they can use it for things that aren't, that are part of the official duties, but which are not necessarily planned in advance. And uh, I, if I recall, it was probably not even $20,000. And I had more speeches because I was a disruptor in that industry uh, than all of the other four commissioners, including the chairman, put together uh, times two. And I ran out of my budget because uh, one, despite the fact that uh, everyone I spoke to would offer to pay expenses and things like that, I really felt that it was a public obligation to go do it. And, um, and two, um, I, I, uh, when I ran out of money, I basically paid for these trips out of my own pocket and, you know, another 10 or $15,000 each year I was there. And, uh, I also number three knew as many people know that there, the people who opposed what I was talking about were just lying there in wait for me to make a mistake. And, and, and that happens all the time, there's always somebody lying in wait for you uh, to make a mistake. Uh, whether And it frankly doesn't matter whether it's public office or whether you're building a bridge somewhere or you, there's, there's someone on the other side who's learned to manage the, the media and other institutions of government uh, to go after you and try to stop what you're doing. So, um, and then later, for example, when I was, um, when I was uh, uh, heading the Jones Act Reform Group, um, I did not take a salary uh, because I would then have had to register as a lobbyist, mm. which I didn't want to do. And um, and the and the Jones Act um, supporters, the, the coalition against us, um, you know, actually attempted to uh, get me charged with some violation of lobbying law. And of course, they were shocked to find out I had actually thought it through and therefore didn't take a salary, and therefore couldn't be called a lobbyist. Because I wasn't receiving remuneration, so you were, on, you were on you weren't on the take, and they were shocked. They couldn't believe somebody wasn't on the take. Right, that's right. So you know, um, and how that gets back to your question, um, um, you know, most presidents, certainly in our lifetimes, have been very cognizant of both the the image and the power of the presidency, as well as the lack of power. And which I want to talk to in a minute, because I do think what this brings up is this whole issue of executive power and the creeping power of the executive branch. But, um, you know, George um, uh, Bush Sr. and Ronald Reagan uh, famously said they would never go into the Oval Office without a, a suit and tie. And, uh, you know, some of these folks were shocked, just shocked to see Obama, President Obama, with his feet on the desk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I imagine myself in a similar situation, and actually, I work with my feet on my desk, so <laughs> that you know, I guess it, the blood flows better to my brain or something. So, um, uh, Nixon, to get around all of that, basically had a little hideaway office off to the side of the Oval Office, uh, where he could take off his jacket and roll up his sleeves and loosen his tie, and and 
and an order break in. Yeah, huh? Yeah, right. <laughs> <And our> order, <laughs> break in, right? Uh, the hideaway right. office was the right. b- b- source of many of trouble. Yeah, that's right, probably. <laughs> and but, Bill Clinton uh, too. That's right. But then again, how does it? You know, how does that affect your ego? I, 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 I still remember I was not there, but of course I've read about it so many times. The the uh, 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 Jim Baker, uh, who was, was then Secretary of State, I think. Um, might have been chief of staff, but I think he, no, he was secretary of state, I think, um, was arguing with President George H.W. Bush 41 um, about something. And and Bush said, well, if you're so smart, why aren't you president? <laughs> <laughs> and so, 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 of course, it has to go to your head a little bit that you are the president. Right. And all these things. But, but I think Trump really takes this to a whole new level. And, and I think he, he does, whether he deliberately thinks it out as a performer or whether he just is that way because he is a performer, uh, who knows uh, what the answer is. But, but we do know that he has said that he said that several people reported he, he said on several occasions that he had to, well, actually, he said it himself in front of the, uh, the uh, conservative uh, journalists, remember a couple of weeks ago where he said, you know, um, I, I know my tweets will set everybody off. And I, I, I sent out a tweet and it was a beauty, remember? <laughs> and uh, that was about as revealing as you could possibly be about his whole strategy uh, 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 being on 24-7. Yeah, he admitted in one press conference about a month or two ago that he watches how, how much engagement he gets, how many likes, oh, yeah. all that. And Same one. Ben Shapiro has has repeatedly said the best way for the president to get reelected is for the White House staff to create a Twitter like app with fake robots that make the president think that he actually tweeted, but really it's just a bunch of fake bots going, "Good job, Mr. President. Way to go." <laughs> <laughs> well, but but now the other side of that, so you know, the, all these things have nuance to them too. So so you know, this morning they were talking on the news how his base, um, which has been. Um, plus or minus a couple points off of 35 or 6 or 39 thereabouts. Uh, that was down a little bit this week, I think. And um, and they make they keep hammering on the fact that he hasn't really grown it. I mean, he's grown it a couple points for a while. But it would be you would be hard pressed to find anyone uh, among any candidates who can say I have 40 percent of the public on my side, no matter what I do. Right. Right. Okay, so that's a pretty good base, and he doesn't even need to get ten percent more uh, to to win. He only needs about seven percent more if you if you assume that you know an excess of five million votes is off in California. Yeah, you mentioned you wanted to touch on executive power, and I think that was highlighted perfectly by Trump's tweet on Friday, where he yes. hereby orders companies not to not to trade with one of our biggest trading partners, and then he floated this emergency presidential act from the seventies, and and of course all these free marketeers that were Ron Paul fans on my Facebook that now are Trump <laughs> fans are arguing against the free market, and the president can do it because it's an emergency, and it's like guys, a national emergency is when both all the houses. <laughs> of Congress and both parties are standing with their hands over their heart out front of the Congress going, God bless America, because 9-11 happened the day before. (laughs) Pearl Harbor is a national emergency. Donald Trump tantruming with China and tariffs is not a national emergency. 
and but it just highlights that the tools that have developed for the president to kind of do whatever the president wants to do regardless of power and it really the administrative state is is growing and becoming more and more powerful and it's and it's very uh concerning well it is and i think um but but uh, again on that point turns out there is a law somewhere, I think it's 1977, that if there's an international economic emergency, uh, he, he might well have the power to do just that. And, and I think what's interesting here uh, is how much, how much um, uh, his staff has been researching ways for him to use existing law to, uh, to, um, to give him powers or define powers that people had not thought about when they wrote the law. Um, you know, Bill Barr himself is one of those guys who uh, has uh, written about. He, did, he didn't call it the imperial presidency, but he what he he supports a very strong presidency and the use of executive orders and all of that. And here now we have a president who's doing it. And um, you know, Obama did it. I, I think back all the way back to Richard Nixon in. Uh, 70 or 71 when um we had uh, you know he he um uh, had an executive order basically that created um the the, uh, the the economic council and that's not the name of it but that and cost controls and everything else he'd spent years and years including right up through the 1970s saying he opposed price controls and then bam um uh, inflation uh, tipped just over 6% and, and uh, unemployment was just under 6%. And that combination was enough to set in a kind of panic. And he, he, uh, you know, he did what he did, which was impose 90 day price controls with a sign, you know, wave of the wand and, and a sign of the pen. For yeah. for us uh, now, of course, I know I understand what price controls are. But for those less seasoned uh, listeners, those younger who may not understand what a price control is, can you kind of give us some background on that, please? Well, basically, um, what the, what they what a price control does is that it, uh, it's it, um, it well what they did were a number of things. Um, they did a ninety day freeze on wages and prices to counter inflation. So you could not raise your wages uh, or lower them, and you could not uh, raise your prices or lower them. And it was the first time the U.S. government ever had done it since World War II. So it wasn't the first time it had ever been done. Uh, but he also, um, he did, uh, he, he directed uh, Secretary Connolly. John Connolly was in the Secretary of the Treasury, and for those who don't remember, he was also governor of Texas, writing in the limousine ahead of John Kennedy when he was uh, assassinated and he himself was shot um, and some think by one of the bullets that went through Kennedy he was part of that uh, but uh, he ordered him to uh, to suspend convertibility of the dollar into gold and other reserve assets you know gold was still was still uh, I believe gold was still the standard and it was no longer the standard later um, it's what they call closing the gold window um, so foreign governments couldn't exchange their dollars for gold. They used to be able to do that, and now they can't. They haven't been able to do it essentially s- since then. Um, and then they put a, a surcharge of about 10% on American on imports so that you know, U.S. products wouldn't be a, a disadvantage. And that was literally all with a stroke of a pen. And um, uh, so 
I think we have seen a steady increase in the powers of the presidency. And, you know, there was a book written uh, at uh, some time after the Nixon administration called The Imperial Presidency. And it was aimed at Nixon, but uh, the lessons certainly apply to everyone since, uh, which is uh, the, the, the inability of the Congress to act or come together to make sausage is drives presidents nuts. Yeah. Yeah. There's another book called it's, it's got this purposely bland title by the Mises Institute um, called reassessing the presidency. And it basically is this radical book decrying the power of the presidency. And they, they gave it this bland title. So people would kind of be fooled into getting it. But you know, the Mises Institute's anarchist basically. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a, that's an interesting insight. So it's always amazing to me when we talk or if I read about the Nixon administration and that whole era, you, you think, wow, it couldn't be any worse than this. And this is sort of always the the best part about reading history. You go, it can't be any worse. History is the antidote to hysteria because you hear about price controls and what Nixon was doing and the gold standard and all that. And you go, Things aren't as bad as it was back then in terms of government overreach. Yes, there is a lot of government overreach. It's certainly grown. The deficit is a huge concern. But you hear about that and you go, all right, Trump, Trump's tariffs sound like a fraction, like a quarter of, of what Nixon was doing with some of that price control stuff. Well, sort of yes and no, actually. I, I, I think if you think about history, you know, what the imperial, the point of the imperial presidency, the book, it was Arthur Schlesinger Jr. Mm, okay. Um, he, he, he had two concerns, that the presidency has, was becoming uncontrollable and that it exceeded its constitutional limits. And those are things about which you and every libertarian and every conservative, all of us should be concerned about. Um, and it was based on his observations, you know, up through the 1930s. And thinking about George Washington had one secretary, right. basically, and then a handful of cabinet departments. But up until the 30s, the president had very few staff. Most of them were in the, in the Capitol building. The president had his own office, which was then called the president's room. Um, and now they may use it for ceremonial. But in the, you know, the last two centuries, the, the, they were really just there with a small staff. So then you have the Great Depression and you have World War II. And, of course, that changed everything in terms of uh, the president's need for analysis and staff to carry out things and come up with new ideas and blah, 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 blah. Um, Today, of course, it's huge. You know, the president's got a very large um, executive staff, um, some in the West Wing, which was added by Teddy Roosevelt uh, in order to expand his staff <laughs> and, yeah. you know, at the turn of the previous century and the century before, you know, 1900s. And then uh, and the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, which is the uh, old executive office building next door and the new one across the street the OEOB and the NEOB and, and there, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of people uh, who are in there working on uh, the presidency. And so, um, so you have these people and they're, they're essentially professionals. You know, these, this could be what you might call the swamp. I mean, they, they're people who, who work on the president's budget. You know, the president didn't used to do the budget. The Congress was supposed to send him the budget for him to spend. And at some point that changed. And so he has to do a budget and he has to decide what his programs are that he wants. And he, somebody has to flesh them out. And then they have the issue of can they control the cabinet secretaries who 
uh, one might think are somewhat independent, but the reality is they're political appointees, even though they're approved by the Congress. Um, so, uh, and then, and then, you know, they, uh, Roosevelt had, uh, Franklin Roosevelt had what they called the kitchen cabinet with his buddies that played poker and all that. And Truman had a similar kitchen cabinet of business guys and cabinet friends and other, others who were not. And, and, um, um, that, you know, under Reagan and Nixon, that was sort of referred to as a court. So right. um, I would argue that um, Trump has taken it to the far extreme, which is um, he really he has, really has courtiers in the classic sense of people <laughs> whose job it is to say yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they're courting him, you know, all the time. Um, and there are a few standouts who obviously try to do do think about the public at large. Yeah, uh, uh, Stephen Miller doesn't strike me as uh, Edwin Stanton. I mean... <laughs> no, no. Miller is... Uh, no, I, no. I don't know him, and, I, you know, he just seems, seems like a thoroughly uh, dislikable individual. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, well, let's let's talk before we run out of time, the, uh, kind of our final thing that we wanted to talk about, which is a looming recession. A lot of economists are saying... Yeah. Uh, the, the, the June of 2020 next year, uh, I just did an episode of the Chris Spangle show. If you go listen to that podcast, you can hear what, yeah. what may be happening there. But when you talk about the swamp and you talk about power in DC, I mean, it doesn't get any more swampy than the federal reserve and Jerome Powell and, uh, man, Trump has, been beating up on him a lot saying and a lot of people saying hey quit talking us into a recession i mean what what are some what's your take on some of that well i th i think that i th i think this is very sort of a fraught moment um i, I think there's a danger in uh looking back to history for guidance too which is that um particularly in economics and we talk about economic cy cycles as if they are immutable, but in fact, there are lots of different kinds of cycles. And I think our understanding of how the economy works is probably better. I, I would hope that we got better at understanding it. We are now with the 10th or 11th year of this expansion. Um, um, we're certainly not in a recession now. Um, and I was listening this morning, some of the media, and they're saying that the consensus of economists is that we may well be in one by the end of 2020, which will uh, be post the election and you know recessions you don't typically know you're in it until you're halfway out of it right you actually have to have a, a declaration that you've had two down cycles if i remember um so and yes um a lot of what's holding driving us right now is consumer confidence um although that i think was down four points uh in the last report yeah although it has been rising and up so I, I do not disagree with people who say you can sort of talk yourself into a recession. So I suspect that Trump and his people, you know, he got a report from somebody that one of his advisors that, you know, this and that, and the tariffs are having a massive impact on the economy. And, and of course, he doesn't tend to think about how much our economy is driven by exports and imports from other countries and, and all of economic theory. He's, you know, he's just this sort of, Queens business guy who thinks things should work the way he wants them to work. Yeah, yeah. It's a very narrow universe. So in some ways, the worst aspect of the tariffs is that they have really massively undermined the economies of European and Asian allies for us. 
Yeah. And, and, uh, uh, now, and of course Friday, you know, I'm watching my stocks go down three or four points too. <laughs> so, and everybody with a 401k is watching that go up and down and up and down and, and the swings are not delightful. Well, I'll, I've thought for months that we may be in a recession currently because subscri- I manage a lot of subscription services and, you know, for We Are Libertarians, for instance, our Patreon, we'd lost one or two a month for the 20 months we had had it. And then earlier this year, we lost like 30 in three months. Huh. I mean, it. and then people who are just kind of like on fringy cash businesses or services, everybody was telling me all through this year business is down and then we just had the state fair and you walk around the expo hall which is where all like kind of the vendors are and you ask them like how are you doing this year they said attendance it seems to be way down there's a lot less people here nobody's buying anything well of course who makes up the bulk of the buying power at the state farm it's farmers in a state that's 80 percent agrarian uh agriculture there's the state fair brought less people, less people could go, less people, farmers spent less money at vendors and concessions. So I think it has, I think it's, it's those little telltale signs that you can kind of sometimes see and you go, that's anecdotal. But but those are sectoral. Right. Yeah. You're, you're exactly right that farmers have been hit probably the worst. Yeah. Um, uh, There is a kind of shrug out of many farmers though, which is, you know, we always take the brunt of it this is going to be good for everybody else when it's all over, kind of blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I, and I get that attitude, but you know, the reality is even if you feel that way, you may not be able to afford to drive to the state fair. I think it's going to be worth your time to do it. Right. So, so I think some of what you're seeing, Chris is because of where you live. Um, I, I cannot say I see any slowdown whatsoever here in the, the middle Atlantic States. Mm. And, um, and you know, I see new businesses, I see restaurants competing, Vigorously for each other's business. Uh, although, although one of the major restaurateurs locally uh, said to me recently that last year uh, restaurant business was down eight percent among all restaurants, and he felt that was because there was so much new competition. So, yeah. you know, so it was supply was out, out running demand, um, and you know where I'm currently living, I there's a dozen interesting restaurants four really four or five really good ones and then uh, there's three new buildings going up and they all have restaurants in them (laughs) but um so i i don't think the signs are there i think that's i think that's probably why powell is so reluctant powell is a a good it it turns out that um he was involved with a a charter school that my wife of which my wife is now chairman Hmm. in the district and you know, he is a very well thought of guy, and he, of course, is the candidate establishment. If you can't have Janet Yellen or Ben Bernanke or one of these guys, and honestly, for the Fed, you want somebody who is conservative about the levers of government because the Fed can kind of make you or break you. And I know we all know that what he's thinking about, and 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 maybe someone would say, well, this is a swamp working against Trump. Um, what he's thinking about is if there is a recession uh, the, and for which there's some likelihood in the near future, one or two or three or four years, you know, you can't keep growing on an expansion. What what levers will he have if it happens? Right. And really, the only lever they have is interest rates. And, you know, they only have uh, a, a point or two to play with right now. Uh, 
in, in case something happens. And, and as he says, you know, the, the trade part of the equation is something he can't do anything about. He cannot ameliorate the impact of it all by himself. Uh, now, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk. There was an interesting article I saw, by the way, on, um, I think two days ago about, uh, I can't remember the author, uh, but maybe I'll send it to you and put it on the website. But he was saying the Chinese win either way. <clears throat> if if uh, it, it could, they could just simply wake Trump out and take all the pain, and they're sort of used to it. Right. And in which case, it's just going to get worse and worse. We might trigger a recession. And then he won't be reelected, and they can say to everyone else, well, we knocked off an American president. Yeah. Or, alternatively, um, he can grant them some concessions because the pain is a little too much here, and he would probably argue people are too weak, they should trust him. Um, without without a, not a lot of good cause to do that. Um, and make a deal that's not particularly good for us or anything else, and then the Chinese can again say, well, you see, we beat an American president, so the rest of you in Europe and Asia or else need to listen to us in either case. So uh, so the, ar- the author was arguing that Trump has now gotten us into a situation uh, in which there is no win-win for us in either way. But uh, to counter that, I mean, Trump has kind of, I think for me, in a lot of ways, exposed the Chinese for who they are. Because yes, I, I always I just kind of took for granted that, oh, well, they're liberalizing, you know, Nixon opened yeah. China, now they're becoming more democratic. And yeah. then, you know, Z becomes basically emperor and they start cracking down. And then you look at what's, you know, amassing yeah. troops on the Hong Kong border and the social credit system. And you start and two million political prisoners locked up yeah. in the last few years, churches yeah. being raised. Like you start, to, you're right. You start to put this all together and you go, you know, Trump may be correct about China and they, they do rip us off in a lot of ways. I don't agree with his policy, but I do. I do think that I think the American political system took for granted that China was a partner instead of a foe, and I think he has sort of recentered the idea of which is just the truth: is that the Chinese are not to be trusted. They don't have our best interest out. They're not. We we do need them for trade and for manufacturing, but at the same time, they're not looking out for our best interest. They're not. No. They're not well, the British. And- well, and, and she is exactly the opposite of Trump, which is that he is calculating, farsighted, tactical and strategic both. He understands where he wants to go and he's doing everything that he wants to get done. And, and everything you said is correct, Chris. And I have experienced um, uh, the theft of my intellectual property over there. And um, they are absolutely repressive. You, you have to admit that American companies and European companies with their technology have helped him. Um, become so, um, you know, a lot of the facial recognition and the electronic technologies being used to create the national social credit score that they're using to determine whether you get to go to school or have children or, you know, get to go to lunch or get a political position or any of that. American companies, American companies are at the root of that. And of course, I worry about uh, how, how soon will American government try to apply that here? And facial recognition is a great tool for the police, but it's also one that can be uh, wildly misused. Uh, uh, gene typing is another one. Um, um, uh, you know, license plate databases, all of these things 
um, uh, proceeding kind of proceed willy-nilly. And I don't think we as a country have developed a new set of rules ourselves to deal with that. And, I, you know, a lot of these things that start on the uh, over there in Russia or China or whatever are really the leading edge of what's going to happen or has already happened here uh, in uh, Western society. Um, just think about it. We've talked about it before England, where you can be on camera 175 or 80 times a day. Yeah. Um, is that a good thing? I don't think so. Uh, do the police think it's a good thing? Absolutely. They love it. Um, can we now start predicting, we, we, you know, we're talking about, can we predict when somebody's going to shoot somebody? And, um, you know, you're starting to see people, um, can we use AI on people's art, uh, artificial intelligence on people's um, uh, Facebook accounts or their, you know, their Instagram or whatever to detect whether they're likely to do something? Well, that is exactly where we don't want to be. And, uh, you know, to remind yourself of what that's like, just take a look again at the Tom Cruise movie of 20 years ago. Um, uh, uh, I can't remember that name either, but. Uh, minority Report. Minority Report, yes. That, that is the future. And um, we, ha- we, we do not stop long enough ever to ask ourselves, is that the future we would like to have? And I, I hate to say, but I think the millennials and xenials and, and, um, and a little bit of your generation, you're, I think you're older than a millennial, right? Uh, I am at the very beginning of it. I'm, I'm a couple years in. Yeah, you're at the, yeah so, but you're at the leading edge. Mm-hmm. And I think um, there's less knowledge uh, about uh, uh, the history of all of these things than one would like and about the right to be independent and, and uh, you know, have privacy. Yeah, privacy. just privacy. I, like the idea that privacy's gone. Right. It's the, another whole it's another whole thing, right? Right. It's a digital panopticon. I mean, look up panopticon yep. if you're not familiar yep, with the right. idea. It's I mean, it literally drove yeah. people mad in I believe England or Pennsylvania. But the the reality is that when the the supposedly small government Republican president is comfortable floating the idea of using your Apple Watch or Android phone yep. or Alexa device to listen in on whether or not you should be allowed to have a gun or not. Yeah. Uh, and using that as a database, like, and I had a couple friends kind of privately message me and go, Hey, I don't want to get attacked on your Facebook. Like, what's the problem? This seems like this could help stop a lot of domestic issues, like a lot of mass shootings. Cause they're using it on the, yeah. uh, under the pretense of stopping mass shootings. Well, but I do. Yes, it is a pretense. And right. I think, Yes, I, I think, and the and the the notion that this is all about mental illness has been shown to be absolutely not true. You know, the FBI did a study of mass shooters, and I think less than fifteen or twenty percent of of all of them could be considered to be mental illness. Um, obviously, there are issues when people do what they do there, but um, everything you do about mental illness, none of that, very little of that, will have any impact on any of this. And um, now, th- what could have an impact? Uh, you know, there are, there are serious things you could do. You could restrict uh, the size of gun magazines, and you could uh, you could categorize uh, automatic weapons in the same category as bazookas and other things, which are already forbidden to the public. But I don't want to go down that path particularly here. But the notion that we want to be listened to all the time and and uh, some artificial intelligence deciding if we're going to shoot somebody is it's pretty, yeah. Have you ever had a fight with your wife? 
yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, when you are watching, right. I would always lose. <laughs> but right, but when you are when you are being watched, it's very easy when you're being watched to cherry pick, a, yeah. a, and then it can be used in whatever way you want. So it's just it's a terrifying notion that someone would even entertain that idea in the Oval Office, and that that but, you know somebody said it to him. Uh, right. You know, someone somewhere said, "Well, we could be doing this or that." It, it's the chairman of trying it. to find a way, but but this guy is what he's trying yeah, to do is, is this guy Wagner? Way. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, but he's trying to find a way not to do anything. Right. Right. <laughs> okay, and to put it off on something else. So. Uh, okay, so let's wrap up with the Diner's Guide to DC. You, uh, yeah. You're quite the uh, the uh, well, I diner thinking, in DC. I was thinking the other day that, um, or this morning in particular, so. Um, what I'm going to suggest today is that um, if you go to Washington, that you uh, go to the baseball game down at Nats Park in the Navy Yard area. It's uh, I am living there. I think I've mentioned several of the restaurants before, but it is an incredibly cool place um, these days. Uh, there are events outside. It's um, it's well designed. There's a lot of energy, and there. There are tons of restaurants that are good. They're ranging from several on the waterfront. Anna at the District Winery, which is an interesting story about a guy making wine who started in New York City, um, uh, to um, Osteria, Osteria Marini, which re- reopened after a fire, which is really very high-end Italian, to, uh, to uh, Chloe, which I've mentioned before, which is one of the city's uh, best chefs, uh, yeah, to uh, Schilling, which I talked about last time, to Salt Line, and um, uh, there in that side there are a number of restaurants all clustered uh, close up to the ballpark. And around me, they if you want to escape, they're over there. So if you're going to Washington, uh, you ought to plan a Saturday over in the Navy Yard area. And if you get the timing right before, uh, I think before the end of uh, October, maybe earlier. Uh, there's a street um, food scape um, that is uh, called a smorgasburg, which started in New York, which has about 25 different restaurants uh, or little uh, food stands uh, to fireworks at night, sometimes and music on Friday. So that's fun. Uh, that would be a great little one day trip. You could do the Smithsonian in the morning and, and then uh, you're not all that far away or you could do the Capitol and walk on down. Cool. Very good. Well, it was great talking to you. Uh, we're we're closer in episodes than we've been ever before. So yes, we're working on it. We literally were like trying to arrange our schedules, and he's like, "How about this day?" I'm like, "Nope." How about this day? Nope. How, so we're we're we always try to get together every couple of weeks. So we'll we'll start planning a week ahead, and then we I can, suspect there's going to be a lot more to talk about as we move along here. Uh, oh, for sure. <laughs> this is going to be one spectacular presidential cycle. So I can't wait to. To hear I'm more sure from I you. Describe it as spectacular, <laughs> Huge. maybe as a spectacle. Yes. <laughs> All right, Rob. Thank you so much for joining us yep. here on the program. Totally, Chris. Have a good one.